Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, it's now April 2023. And the sounds you can hear around me are those of our local graveyard. Might seem a little gothic of me, but I'm surrounded by celandines and wooden enemies, dog violets, and even a few early bluebells. There are two squirrels over there. It's a bit more John Constable than Henry Fuseli. The church here, though, is almost exactly to the mile halfway between Canterbury and Winchester along the Pilgrim's Way. Perhaps the most well-known of British pilgrimages, the Pilgrim's Way, is 153 miles long and was meant to take 15 days to walk. Pilgrims first started making that journey from Winchester to Canterbury in 1172, two years after the martyrdom of Thomas Becket. But there's been a churchyard here since around that time with part of the very building in front of me dating from the 12th century. It's very quiet here though, as you can hear. I'm very peaceful. Not a pilgrim in sight. When I need to think, I often come to this churchyard. And when I do, I sometimes think about those pilgrims. People who made their way for hundreds of years from the nation's old capital on to the heart of England's Christian tradition. I'm not a religious person, but it's hard not to be moved by an idea like that. Eleanor and I recently visited Winchester to research this episode, and since we've come home, I've been thinking a lot about Canterbury, including from this midpoint. Maybe we'll head there soon, but in the meantime, let's look back to Hampshire, the power base of Alfred, the Anglo-Saxon King of Wessex, the resting place of Arthur's Round Table, and home to the 11th century New Forest and all of the creatures that live within it. So, 
gather close around the three ravens' campfire and listen in. Welcome to the Three Ravens Podcast. There were three ravens sat on a tree Down and down, hey down and down They were as black as they might be with a down One of them said to his mate Where shall we our breakfast take With a down, dairy, 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 down, down Hello and welcome to episode 6 of the Three Ravens podcast. My name's Martin Vaux, I'm a storyteller, writer and English romanticism obsessive and I'm joined as ever by my partner in crime and all dark arts, award-winning poet, playwright, Shakespeare scholar and witch, Eleanor Conlon. How's things, Eleanor? Is the glitter contagion under control? Of course not. (laughs) As anyone who's ever worked with glitter knows, it's never under control. Once unleashed, you can't take it back. It's like nuclear warfare. There are no take-backs. Found it in the bed. Um, Glitter. So yeah, that was good. Um, But it's not just glitter this time. There's moss involved as well. I would call moss nature's glitter. (laughs) Because it's just as messy and separates into just as many tiny <laughs> scattering parts. <laughs> so it's probably worth saying at the moment that Eleanor and I are spending even more time than usual in the woods, dressed as fairies, running a new fairy trail and storytelling event through an ancient forest. If you're in Sussex and fancy coming along to our fairy forest, we will be at Heaven Farm in Furnace Green until the 16th of April, and you can book tickets at featherfoyforest.com. We will be dressed... In very beautiful things that you've made. What, what things have you made, just to give people an, an idea? Yes, I've been making some lovely cottagecore fairy costumes with a little bit of moss involved <laughs> as well. Only a little bit of moss is actually on the costumes because most of the moss is in our home. <laughs> Being walked around from room to room. Some of it's in my hair. How we'll tidy up afterwards. <laughs> anyway, thank you to everyone who's entered the Three Ravens card design contest this week. We're almost halfway through the competition and if you would like to enter then, if you're an artist of any skill level, seriously, any skill level, please send us a design for a greetings card. We're looking for art inspired by nature and the folk tradition. After our first series of 13 episodes, we'll be picking our three favourite designs to turn into greetings cards and sell for a 50-50 profit share with the winners through our online shop at 3ravenspodcast.com. To enter, just send your work through to us as a JPEG to 3ravenspodcast at gmail.com, the same place to send feedback or your own folk tales so we can feature them in one of our episodes of listener stories. And thank you to everyone who's joining us on social media, including on facebook.com forward slash three ravens podcast instagram at three ravens podcast and on twitter via at three ravens pod particular appreciation to ben sophie barry at sunday folklore emma from the legit amazing real life ghost stories podcast matthias weird wednesday Black Cat Tales on Instagram and Lewis Castle, which is really nice that they're getting involved. (laughs) So we're releasing this episode on Monday the 10th of April, which is Easter Monday. Now, Eleanor, 
you love Easter. What are your favourite things about it? Now, I really want to say that my favourite thing about Easter is something deeply traditional uh-huh. and folkloric yeah, yeah. and on brand, but it, it's not. It, it's Cadbury's mini eggs. Those are my favourite things about Easter. You have been driving around garages in East Sussex trying to find mini eggs, but they, they can't be found. It's probably because I cleaned them out on the 1st of February. <laughs> so in your mind, are there any particular Easter Monday customs or traditions you can think of or you feel ought to be honoured? Yes going to all of the sales sections of all of the supermarkets for Cadbury's <laughs> mini egg. No, I'm kidding. Um, I actually, I heard one about egg battling. Egg battling? Yes. So uh, the idea is that you take an egg yeah. and your opponent also takes an egg yeah. and, and you, you hit them against each other. What? Like your fists? Kind of like your fists. Wow. But But I take my egg and you take your egg and we clash them together. Oh, okay. And whoever's egg breaks first loses. Oh, I imagine both eggs would break pretty quickly. Pretty quickly, <laughs> yes. Um, and I think ultimately you're both losers because you've just broken your eggs and they're full of bits of shell, yeah, so you can't even enough. scramble them. Well, more on the dangers of leaving eggshell around shortly. Ooh. But Easter Monday is traditionally a time of celebration with one of the major traditions being woman lifting. Woman lifting? Yes. Men used to lift ladies, either using a chair decorated with flowers and ribbons, or by crossing their arms, grasping their wrists from behind them, then lifting them up. Simples. <laughs> Should we try it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I'm in a chair. Well, yeah, good. So It has a ribbon on it. <laughs> Lift it up. I could do it. I could do it. I'll I, do it. I think our listeners would like to hear you attempting woman lifting <laughs> well, live the, on air. The idea is that if a man can lift a lady three times, then the man can claim either a kiss or the princely sum of one shilling. The ladies then get their chance on Easter Tuesday, uh, where they engage in man lifting. So no matter who you are, today or tomorrow, find someone to pick up and uh, once you pick them up, charge them for it. <laughs> we'll record our attempts on yeah, our social media. coming up. Um, another <laughs> Easter Monday tradition is egg rolling, naturally. Uh, if you want to do egg rolling in the traditional style, sometimes the eggs are hard boiled, sometimes they're just raw. But the idea is that challenges each roll an egg from the same spot and see which egg rolls furthest without breaking. Um, the absolute key is to ensure you've not left any broken shell behind, otherwise witches can use the shell pieces to work nasty spells against the egg's former owner. Yes, they use them as boats. Do they? Yes, witches use broken eggshell as boats. And if you leave leave the eggshells out for them, they can sail on the sea and cause great storms. Oh, that's pretty interesting and cool. Um, I feel like we should be turning this into a business, you turning bits of eggshell into boats. We could make money this way. We probably could. Mm. Whether anyone would want to sail in them, I'm not sure. Well, I feel like we should do some experiments and see. Um, if you're not up for rolling eggs, then alternatively, you can go for a modern update or equivalent. Cheese. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Or a game of marbles, skittles, mm. or stool ball. Or at the other end of the ethical scale, you might want to go for a stag hunt. Nope. No? That's a traditional Easter Monday thing. No? Uh, Hunting snacks? <laughs> Not for me, thank you. Yeah, me neither. Traditional Easter Monday foods include bread and cheese. Perfect. Yep, cheese is there. Big tick for Eleanor. Hair pie, or probably coolest of all, 
Biddenden cakes. Ooh. Now, this tradition comes from Biddenden in Kent. The cakes are actually biscuits rather than cakes, showing an image of the Biddenden maids. Have you heard of the Biddenden maids? I have. We've uh, we've driven through Biddenden and they're pictured on the village sign. They are. In Kent, they have beautiful village signs, pictorial, often painted. Sometimes they're, they're made out of wrought iron, I think, now. And the... the they're conjoined twins, aren't they? That's exactly right. Yes, and we saw a picture of them, an old um, drawing at Smallhithe Place, that's which was the actor Ellen Terry's correct. house. Yeah, that's right. So they have some news articles about them there and like pieces of writing. So they were conjoined twins from the 12th century named Eliza and Mary Chalkhurst. So the story goes, they were joined at the shoulder and the hip and really didn't get along. Oh no, we've got a St. Cuthman and his mother in the wheelbarrow situation. Kind of, yeah, <laughs> so it said they argued all the time, which is probably fair enough if you are joined to someone. You're probably going to get on each other's nerves after a certain point. I mean, just putting on shoes yes. is going to wind you up, well, isn't it? indeed, and if one of you drops something, you're Ooh. both going to have to lean, aren't you? Yet... Sadly and interestingly, when Mary, one of the twins, died suddenly in 1134 and doctors suggested to Eliza that they could operate and try to save her life, Eliza reportedly said, we arrived together, so we'll go together. And then six hours later... She died too. Oh, that's know. rather sweet. It is. So the tradition of Biddenden cakes came about because the Chalkhurst twins bequeathed 20 acres of land to the church in their wills to be used to help feed the poor. Hmm. So since then, the church in Biddenden has kept up the tradition, giving out bread, cheese, tea and Biddenden cakes every Easter Monday. I think there's a Biddenden cider is there? Yes, Ooh, uh, from, like, from Biddenden in Kent. I like your cider, I do. I think I tried it and it's very potent. Is it? Yes. <laughs> the, the fact that you can't clearly remember what it was like <laughs> would suggest as much. <laughs> well, I think it was very nice. <laughs> now, we're not headed to Kent for a few episodes yet. This week's all about Hampshire. So, Eleanor, is it time to release the county criers? I've had them caged, but they're flailing. They're ready to get out. They're rattling the bars. Well, so get the key. Get the key and let them go. Okay then, Eleanor, you've got the inside track this week because we went to Hampshire for a few days last week on a research trip. Have you spent much time there before we went? Not a great deal, okay. I must say. It was a new adventure. Oh, it was great. We had a wonderful time. Now, as per usual, we've popped up a map on threeravenspodcast.com, which shows exactly where Hampshire is in England. Do pop by and check out the blog on the website too for photos and links to local organisations. Now, Hampshire's county motto is, rather boldly, the first shire. Ooh. I know. Shots fired, J.R.R. <laughs> Tolkien. <laughs> now, in terms of general location, it's right to the west of England's southeast, which is confusing. <laughs> uh, the English Channel runs along its south coast. To the north, it's bordered by Berkshire. Then it's also bordered by Surrey to the northeast, Wiltshire to the northwest, Sussex to the southeast, and Dorset to the southwest. Oof. Is that, um, was it a port? It was. In mm. fact, two major and really important ports are based in Hampshire. Now, curiously, 
almost half of Hampshire is covered by national parks. Wow. I know, right? One of them is the South Downs National Park, which spreads right the way over to us in Sussex. The other is the New Forest. Now, the New Forest is particularly interesting because of Hampshire's Winchester Cathedral. Yes. Winchester Cathedral is wonderful. It is an absolutely amazing cathedral, one of the largest in Europe, and it boasts the longest nave of any cathedral in England. So they say. <laughs> they do say, but so does St Albans, yeah. I, I believe. That's right. St Albans say that their nave is longer by a metre. I don't think we should step into this particular feud. Definitely not. We're, we're not qualified. Um, but we did have a very interesting and inspiring tour of Winchester Cathedral. Yeah. Um, shout out to Dr. Brian, who yeah. took us around and pointed out various points of interest. Oh, um, it was incredible. We really enjoyed that. I recommend that to anyone who's visiting Winchester. Yeah. So in terms of the New Forest. What's the connection? Well, in order to build the cathedral in 1079, Walclain, William the Conqueror's cousin and the first Bishop of Winchester, was given the rights to take as much timber from the Forest of Hempage as he could harvest in four days. Ooh. So, Walclain, being a clever fellow, gathered up a massive troop of carpenters and cut down the entire forest in four days oh, and brought it back to Winchester. I feel like that's not what William the Conqueror had in mind. No, probably not, because there are 17 miles of wood in the roof of the cathedral alone. That's <laughs> oh, over boy. 23 kilometres in new money, which is wild. Um, William the Conqueror, not very happy about it. So to make up for it, the new forest was planted to replace the king's lost hunting grounds. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> now, this in turn connects to another great bit of English folklore, because in 1100, King William II, also known as William Rufus, oh, yes. a reportedly rather rubbish king, was famously killed in the New Forest in a hunting accident. Eleanor, are you familiar with this story? I am slightly familiar with it. I believe that the so-called hunting accident, yeah. um, the, the person who caused the, the accident, believed that the king was a squirrel yes. due to his having bright red hair. Precisely that. So this is the third son of William the Conqueror, William Rufus. He had red hair, he was said to have been really flamboyant in his expenditure and to have been unable to quell northern rebellions, despite leading forays into Wales and repelling a Scottish invasion. So we don't know whether to believe he was as rubbish as people later said he was. Still, the legend goes that on this hunting expedition in the New Forest, he was mistaken for either a squirrel... <laughs> I mean, it doesn't really wash, does it? Unless really. William Rufus was also extremely small right. and had a fluffy tail. Uh, or a red deer, which, you know, I feel like that would be my excuse. Um, anyway, he was shot by his own men. Oh. Then his brother, Henry I, or the man who became Henry I, <laughs> dashed back to Winchester to claim the crown right afterwards. All a little bit suspect. Mm. Still, William Rufus's bones are now in one of Fox's boxes. Or possibly more than one of Fox's boxes. Yes, it could be spread out. Now, these are a set of ancient mortuary chests you can see in Winchester Cathedral, which are also believed to contain the bones of St Swithin and Queen Emma, wife of Ethelred the Unready, and King Canute, amongst other people. Various, many other people. And when we say amongst other people... Yeah. That's actually true, because the mortuary chests don't contain single sets of bones. No. 
they were all jumbled together, weren't they, when they opened them That's to right. investigate? Yeah, there is a fantastic exhibition at the cathedral called Kings and Scribes, which kind of talks you through this big project that they had, trying to date the bones and figure out who was who. They thought there were 17 sets of people's bones in those chests. Turns out there's actually 23. Oh, man. <laughs> so who they actually are is a bit of a mystery. Anyway, they're back up there and uh, in a photograph of Eleanor and I that I'll put up on our various social media. It's pretty amazing. They've managed to do a facial reconstruction of Queen Emma. Yep. Which uh, is quite amazing, I think. Yeah, and it's a great place to visit. Not least to see Jane Austen's grave. Both Jane Austen's graves. Yes, that's true. Um, If you want to know more about that, just go. Uh, No doubt, though, all that Gothic architecture around those parts helped to inspire aspects of Northanger Abbey, which I still think is her best book. Oh, it's so much fun. It is. Um, So, putting Winchester Cathedral aside for a moment, Back in the Bronze Age, Hampshire was a Celtic power base and site of many hill forts, including the Danebury Rings, which were still important in the Iron Age. But by the time the Romans invaded England, the area was primarily occupied by a Gaulish tribe called the Belgae. And by then, the administrative capital was at a place called Venta Bulgarum, the market of the Belgae, which went on to become Winchester. Now, Eleanor, we also got to learn quite a lot about Venta Bulgarum, didn't we? Yes, the Winchester Museum uh, has loads of artefacts and information, fantastic mosaics yeah. from Venta Bulgarum. I, I um, found like the coffins quite captivating there. They have Roman coffins. I, it's an amazing place to go. Um, anyway, after a period of tension between the Jutes and the Visigoths, the West Saxons conquered the region from their power base in Hamwick, which we now call Southampton. And it's from Hamwick that the area became known as Hamptonshire and then Hampshire. Hmm. So that's where the name comes from. Great. Now, in the 9th century, King Alfred of Wessex famously repelled Viking invasions and declared himself the King of England. There are lots of great statues of King Alfred in Winchester, although his grandson, Athelstan, was the first King of Wessex to officially control the whole of England in 927. Now, is that the same King Alfred who burnt the cakes? Yes, it was. And where are all the statues for Athelstan? Absolutely. I mean, Athelstan, with a little help from Guy of Warwick, repelled the Danes. Yes, indeed. Sing- well, yes, not, not single-handedly, but just the two of them, working, <laughs> working in tandem. <laughs> now, after 1066, London became England's capital, but Winchester and Hampshire remained extremely important in England, with Southampton growing to become the biggest city in the county, followed by Portsmouth, which were the heart of England's naval power base for centuries. Of course, it's from Southampton that the Mayflower and Speedwell set sail for America. From 1067, though, Winchester's castle was a seriously important spot, including the Great Hall, where you can find the Round Table. (laughs) Hang on a second. I thought the Round Table was beneath Bossany Mound in Cornwall. Yeah, I think, maybe, maybe, the explanation for this is that King Arthur, what with him being a king and everything had more than one table. You think table. a king of many tables? Yeah, I think. And he, all of them round. Every single one. He couldn't find a corner in any of the man's palaces. Do you think he had as many palaces as Henry of Blois? Uh, possibly. Uh, if you don't know who Henry of Blois is, again, 
Winchester Cathedral, they'll sort you out. <laughs> well, the whole of Hampshire really is yeah. a kind of Henry of Blois adventure trail because well, um, the man had houses every six miles or yeah, so, it incredible. seems. <laughs> yeah, like the richest man in England, Henry of Blois at the yeah, time. Yeah, we saw some fabulous... Well, there's one in Winchester Cathedral and I saw another one as well. Um these incredible big square fonts of tornai marble yeah. which is actually a kind of stone yeah. but it's really highly polished and black and carved very beautiful again more photos coming on social media <laughs> uh, now it's a bit sad that winchester castle itself has been pretty much completely destroyed all that remains are parts of sub levels including a creepy tunnel <laughs> uh, but then you've got the grander great hall which was beside it the Arthurian round table that hangs in the Great Hall was painted in its current design during the reign of, guess who? Henry VIII. Boo! <laughs> now you can see on that round table, which dates from the 13th century, the likeness of Arthur is painted to look like that dastardly abbey smasher. Um, in addition to depicting the 25 knights of the round table, the table is designed to look like a wheel of life with the challenges of Arthur depicted around the wheel as paintings of the king growing older. Mm. Of course, if you're Henry VIII growing older, that that's getting increasingly unappealing, isn't it? Yes. Strangely, he doesn't get fatter and fatter as the wheel goes round. Is he pictured below the knee? Because he was famously <laughs> rather gout-ridden. <laughs> he was indeed. Now, there's a solid little museum in the Great Hall. Not one of the best, but lots of interesting stuff happened there, including several beheadings, uh, the trial of Sir Walter Raleigh in 1603, and the bloody assizes of Judge Jeffreys during the Restoration era. Not a nice guy, Judge Jeffreys. No, didn't we encounter Judge Jeffreys in Lyme Regis? That's right, and Dorchester was yes. another of his main power. He places. got about, didn't he? All about through Wessex, really giving people horrendous sentences for really minor offences. <laughs> now, in terms of folklore, there's some great tales from Hampshire. You've got the High Clear Grampus. A Grampus? Yes. Is that anything like a Krampus? It isn't, no. It's a huge fish-like monster. Uh, the High Clear Grampus lived in a tree in High Clear that was later banished to the Red Sea for a thousand years. Sorry, when was that? <laughs> a little while ago. Do you think it's back? No, the Grampus could be back any minute. The tree's there, no Grampus in it yet. Though. Well, I guess that will answer that age-old question of whether or not a fish can climb a tree. Yes, that's true. And apparently they can. And make horrible noises and scare the villages of Highclere. Um, you've also got the Froxfield fairies who live in the foxgloves all oh. around Froxfield village. That's very lovely. It is. And then there's the mermaid of Nately Skewers. <laughs> I know, what a ridiculous place. I love this country and the crazy names it has for villages. So Neatly Skewers is a place where there is this incredible, tiny, only 13 foot long northern chapel. And it's got this wonderful carving of a mermaid oh. on the side, which commemorates this story. Basically, the story goes that this maiden was set to marry a handsome sailor at St. Swithin's Church, this tiny 13 foot. Norman Chapel. Only the sailor had previously had an affair with a mermaid, and this mermaid swam up the Thames, down the River Loddon and the River Lyde, then marched up to the church on the wedding day, kidnapped the sailor, and stole him away on her back. Oof. <laughs> 
serves him right. It does. Yeah, he was a naughty sailor, and I hope that when she got him home, she gave him a good talking to. <laughs> <laughs> now, you've also got the Werrell cockatrice. You don't often hear about a cockatrice. No, and... I've got to say, I'm not 100% on what a cockatrice is. I'm picturing something between a cockroach and, well, yes, and what? (laughs) (laughs) Well, apparently a duck brooded with a toad and then their egg hatched in the crypt of Werrell Abbey. The villagers originally raised the animal as a pet. That sounds like a horrible idea. Uh It had the body of a rooster the wings of a bat and the tail and head of a snake. But then it grew to become enormous with huge claws and a stare that could turn people to stone. I think there's a reference in Shakespeare to a cockatrice's den. Yes. Well, this one escaped, made a den, used to fly (laughs) about over Hampshire, picking people up with its claws, terrorising them, and then... You know, there was a kind of challenge, gauntlet laid down. How are we going to deal with this cockatrice? Um, And a man called Green came up with the solution. Echoing the Medusa myth, he polished a metal shield so that it could act like a mirror, which helped him defeat the beast, after which he was gifted by the county what is now Harewood Forest. So is the idea that the cockatrice saw its own reflection in the shield and was so horrified that it desisted its monstrous activities? Well, that's one of the different versions. There's another different version where it saw itself and turned itself into stone. And then there's another one where it just attacked the shield for so long because it saw another ghastly enemy and it exhausted itself making it easy for Green to step out and then just slay the beast Ah, when it was uh, fatigued. That could have quite easily gone another way, couldn't it? Because what if it thought that it was actually a rather attractive second (laughs) cockatrice that it was seeing in Green's shield? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, he could have had a really awkward time, couldn't he? Mm. (laughs) Yes. Now, in addition to Werrell, there are lots of ruined abbeys in Hampshire, including Andover Priory, Marwell Priory and Titchfield Abbey, which leads me to today's story. Set in the ruins of Netley Abbey, one of the most haunted places in Hampshire, it's a spooker this week. Oh, I can feel the chills already. (laughs) Bolt your doors and light some candles and I'll start spinning my yarn right after this. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. (laughs) 
From the private papers of Dr. Isaac Watts, physic of Netley near Southampton, dated 10th of April, 1704. I feel a fool committing these grisly thoughts to paper. Yet, in the days since Mr. Taylor's demise, I have been unable to shift the thoughts of it from my mind. A fallen lintel feels an apt icon for my distress, for it is as if the idea has collapsed upon me and is too heavy to shift. Yet, while apt, the analogy is in poor taste. No matter, it is my intention that no living soul should ever read these pages. I only seek to write my account, and in doing so, free my mind from the whole affair, so that then I might know peace. It started with a man named Sloane. Whether Sloane was his last name or first, I never learned, but he was where it all began. I believe he was a midshipman once, though that's but tittle-tattle and speculation. Though I inspected his body, which was riddled with scars and new small wounds, I learned little of his history or character, and no relations have since been traced. Besides, who Sloane was is of little importance. Rather, it's what he did that matters. For though my friend, Mr. Taylor, had always been a man of ambition, the obsession which latterly overtook him would not have entered the course of his thoughts had he not encountered that shameful bandit. This is to say that anyone living in Netley, Southampton, or nearby districts cannot help but know of the Abbey. Its shape protrudes from the landscape like a row of broken teeth, biting through God's green earth and standing rot grey against the clear southern sky. Its story is as twisted as the place, for, though constructed in the 13th century by Peter de Roche, who was then Bishop of Winchester, the Abbey has not been used for a holy purpose since 1536. Since that time, it has been a private residence, a manor owned variously by Marquesses of Winchester, Dukes of Somerset, and Earls of Hertford, Aylesbury, and Huntingdon. As just this brief history would imply, the buildings in the Abbey grounds have never been loved since the days of Henry Tudor. Rather, the place has been feared, hated, and sometimes speculated upon. Indeed, the place may be thought of as a bad penny, a tarnished coin rotten in its very metal, traded back and forth by any gentleman fool enough to think a bad penny spends the same as a good one. These conjectures were gross folly, as the people of Netley know too well. For legends of the Abbey's haunting abound, godless as such tales may at first appear. Still, Around any Eastly landlord's fire, you might hear the same God-fearing people tell the same irreligious accounts that the Abbey's grounds are haunted by two spectres 
that of two Franciscan friars of the strict observant part of that order. It's said that when the abbey was dissolved, those monks were placed into the custody of the abbot, Thomas Stevens, though the bodies of the friars were never found and no further records made of their movements or transfers between authorities. Duly, it has long been surmised that the King's commissioners, Sir James Worsley, William Berners, and the brothers John and George Poulet, had the monks slain and their bodies buried somewhere in those deconsecrated grounds. Word of this slaughter first emerged when the Paulet family were gifted the Abbey estate by Tudor himself. The father, William, never lived there, but he and his sons oversaw the demolition of much of the edifice. They turned the church nave into a great hall, the transepts to luxurious apartments, the monk's dormitory to a long gallery. Next, servants there began to report unsettling nocturnal appearances. It was said the spectres of the two Franciscan friars appeared by moonlight, robed and bathed in blackish blood, carrying reliquaries in their gory hands. These rumours spread like moss, slow and steady, not least of them being that the two Franciscans had before death hidden a cache of papist ornaments in an undiscovered crypt deep in the abbey's grounds. Whether the Paulets knew the gossip or simply ignored it was of little consequence, for they soon sold the estate, and though it passed through many hands and new owners came and went, the rumours lingered on. Indeed, it was those arcane whispers which drew Sloane to Netley, and which, in due course, prompted his undoing. This is to say that, latterly, with the manor house having fallen into rack and ruin, it was sold to the enterprising Sir Bartlett Lucy of Chalcot Park. Lucy, hailing from Warwickshire, cared not a jot for the abbey itself, but saw value in its stone. So he sought resourceful entrepreneurs to dismantle the edifice and sell the best of what remained for the highest profit. The contract was advertised hereabouts for some time, though none in the borough would take it. All knew of the legends and feared such curses or dark fates which might befall them at the phantom hands of those blood-drenched friars. So it was that Sloane, knowing the abbey to be desolate and unguarded, sought to pursue the opportunity for grave robbing. Evidence he left went to show that he had taken a spade and quarried at several points, digging down into the earth in search of the hidden crit. None would have guessed at his endeavours, 
or may have even known that he'd been there, camping alone in a lowly copse, had he not burst into Mrs. Pike's one night, covered head to toe in cold earth, pale as death himself. Though Sloane was known to none at Mrs. Pike's that evening, all listened close enough to recount his ravings. I was told by none other than Brenda Findlay, one of the most God-fearing women in the village, that the stranger pleaded with all who would listen to shrive him of his crimes. He had been digging, he said, seeking the lost treasures of the abbey when he'd found a tunnel, part collapsed, lined with rough-hewn stone. Gingerly, Sloane had clambered down into this underpass, lighting his way with a candle. And lo, he said, though it was tight and dank down in the causeway, he wriggled on through, struggling for a long while, all before finding a burial chamber filled with glinting silver and gold. As Mrs. Findlay told it, it was then that Sloane realised a grim truth. In crawling into the tomb, he had clambered over some fragments of human remains. Though the habit was decayed, and the skin on the cadaver darkened as if to leather, he could see the face of the fallen fellow, and believed he had therefore moved into such a position that there was then a long dead monk laid below him. Panicked though this made Sloane, he was intent, and the trove of relics was within reach, so Sloane said he reached out with his free hand, his candle held tightly in his other. Yet no sooner had he grasped one of the dusty icons did the corpse beneath him shudder, twist, and stare at Sloane with smoke-white eyes. Frightened out of his wits and feeling the cadaver moving about beneath him, Sloane made to escape, and as he did, the very cavern and tunnel in which he was started to collapse about him. So afeared was he that, muttering prayers, he laboured and struggled back through the cold ground as if gifted an angel's strength. Somehow, he made a miraculous escape, intent that all should know that the tunnel should be sealed and never trespassed upon again. Of course, the people of Netley aren't known as fools, and none would have given credence to Sloane's ramblings, save for a single dire fact. For in Sloane's fist, he gripped nothing less than a pectoral cross of pure gold, inlaid with garnet and slivers of silvery shell. Alas for Sloane, who would not release his grip on the cross. Perhaps if he had, it might have saved him. For though the priest was called, and so was I, by the time either of us reached him, Sloane had fallen down stone dead. Most horrid. His fist was still wrapped about the golden icon. 
So strong was his grip, even in death, that I could only prize the relic from him with the use of tools borrowed from Mr. Selwood, the ironmonger. Curious as this incident was, the matter may well have been settled then and there, and the cross buried back in the Abbey's grounds had Mr. Taylor not been present. But Mr. Taylor, as everyone knew, was a very fine builder indeed. Hailing from Southampton, known as William to his friends, he listened to Sloane's story with great interest and, within the hour, had accepted Sir Bartlett Lucy's contract. He returned the agreement by a rider dispatched not long after midnight and at great expense, rousing stonemasons from their beds by dawn. Not two days later, the agreement was returned, signed and sealed, and William Taylor set to work. He hired men, more in number than his usual team of capables, and set to work, shifting the abbey's stones. At the same time, though, he had his men work at digging, for William's drive was less for Bartlett Lucy's coin than the treasure he might find buried deep in the abbey's earth. It had been agreed in the meanwhile that I should maintain possession of the pectoral cross. And for the longest time or so it seemed, I kept the infernal object in my chambers. I did not want it, but William swore me to silence on the matter and paid all who'd been in Mrs. Pike's that night to also hold their tongues. Even the priest stayed mute, though I suppose he's begging forgiveness now. After all, William said to me, you prized the cross from a dead man's hand. Surely you've earned the right to keep it in payment. He said this in jest, but the matter became more and more serious, for something about the relic got as deep under my skin as it had once been buried in the abbey's grounds. Perhaps it was a matter of conscience. But when I closed my eyes, I would see the cross there, glinting and sparkling as if lit by the sun of a pure summer sky. Yet, despite its fire, a shadow soon fell across my mind's eye, and I would shiver like a babe left out in the dead of winter. As days passed, I came to feel I was no longer alone in my lodgings. No matter where I placed it, the cross would move from room to room, cupboard to worktop, and I would hear steady footsteps walking in the dead of night. More than once, sat in my chair of an evening, I thought I heard whispered voices outside my door, hushed in Latin at prayer. Then, or thereabouts, the dreams began. It feels ghoulish to recount them, but recount them I must. They came not at once, but rather they built like a terrible edifice, or words on a scroll unfurling nightly. First, I saw them alone, the two pale Franciscans, walking the streets of Netley. 
From there in my dim awareness I saw them wander through Abbot's Wood and over the Itchin and the Hamble. The pair moved always in a ghastly procession, always progressing towards the Abbey, yet each night they would journey a little nearer. Moreover, each night as dawn approached their march would break, and they would turn back towards me as if I were following on behind and would reveal to me their ghastly wounds. One was slain by sword, I saw stabbed at first with his throat then cut, rendered unable to speak or scream. Instead, he would gabble, his gory tongue lapping at his blackened lips. Then there was the other, the friar who had been blind in his lifetime. I knew somehow that while his brother's name was John, the blind friar, was named Peter, and Peter, unseeing, had been beaten and clubbed, knifed and speared with a dagger, and it was his mangled form which Sloane had found, crushed and crippled in that tunnel beneath the ground. I told William of my dreams, and he laughed at me, much in his manner, assuring me that the visions were nothing more than the prickings of a guilty conscience. If you're so worried, he said, throw the cross into the sea and let it sink to a spot where it will trouble you no more. Perhaps this would have been the wisest course, but it was not the one I charted. Instead, night by night, I followed the phantom friars, John and Blind Peter, trailing their way to what I knew must be their eventual destination. Such it proved to be, for not much more than three nights after I spoke to William, my dreams were filled with the sounds of hammers and mason's chisels. The sounds came before the sights, but the visions followed soon after. Those of William Taylor and his teens, digging and working on the abbey, knocking away at the ruins stone by stone. After this, the terrors came to their climax, for I saw then, in the dream, William Taylor, smiling, overseeing the destruction of an arch. Stood below, surrounded by his men, he pointed and spoke in wordless silence, instructing his fellow craftsmen. Only beyond his sight, flanking him, one on each side, I saw in my dream the two friars standing, pointing up at that same arch until the lintel crumbled and spiralled downwards in a storm of rock which buried my friend beneath. The night I woke from this vision, my heart was thundering in my chest, dread making every nerve tingle. I felt there was nothing to do but immediately dress and walk to Mr. Taylor's residence before the sun had time to rise. This I did, knocking at his door until, in due course, he might be fetched to speak to me. What's, he said, you look as if you've seen a ghost. I explained to him as best I might, begging and pleading him to stop the works on the abbey. Only William 
being a jester, refused to hear the subject of my dreams as anything more than fantasy, laughing them off. I know I tried as much as I could, more than many men might, yet all my imploring served only to anger William, who slammed his door in my face and instructed me never to darken it again. With great regret I travelled home, hearing the cock crow like Judas after Jesus' betrayal. I returned to my bed, heart sick, and was only roused from it when a desperate rapping sounded on my own door later that day. It was a workman, attending to report that, during the works at the Abbey, a high arch had collapsed, crushing Mr. Taylor under tons of ancient stone. The men worked hard at digging him out, and in the meantime I rode out to the scene on horseback. Few could believe him still alive after that ordeal, yet he was, clinging to life by a thread. Alas, he had taken part of a great timber beam to the head. The plank itself had splintered in such a manner that his skull was run clean through. His heart still beat in his chest, but he would not survive. So I pulled the shaft away, in doing so sending the soul of my friend soaring to the hereafter. It was a grim sight, truly for the wound affected his eyes in particular, leaving him gored in much the same manner as Peter, the blind friar. So it has come to pass that William Taylor is scheduled to be buried. Though the dreams have stopped, as have the works on the Abbey, I can't but fear the visions will return. Thus I have decided to have the pectoral cross buried with Mr. Taylor, so he might have a fraction of the riches in the next life that he so desperately craved in this. Moreover, perhaps through that act, if not through this testimony, I might be freed from the Netley Abbey phantoms forever. Right then, the Netley Abbey Phantoms. Eleanor, thoughts? Oh, I've got goosebumps. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I'll be taking a leaf from your fictional doctor's book and having nightmares. Uh, some, well, some of that imagery. <laughs> so we're not a ghost story podcast. Got to leave that kind of thing to the experts. You but... say that, but this is our second ghost story. Yeah, it kind of is, isn't it? And, you know, in six episodes, it's a third of the podcast. It's, <laughs> it's now ghosts. Well, we love ghost stories and horror as well as folk. And the genres certainly have plenty of overlap. Yes, isolated rural settings, yep. close-knit communities, yep. superstitious practices. Well, also, I personally tend to think that history is at its most evocative when it's kind of reaching out of the earth and calling you back. <laughs> so with this story, I wanted to tick a few boxes. So transgressing into a space you've been warned off. 
that is a trope. You can see it time and again in folk tales, whether it's the woods or a particular cottage in the woods or a sacred space. A lot of folk tales contain a kind of moral about obedience. I will say this for ghost stories, though. They always get a warning. Yes. The spirit world does play fair. Yeah, that's very It true. never comes out with all guns blazing the first time you transgress, does it? No, that's true. You do it wrong, you get a warning, but it's the power of three in these stories. That's very true. Third time, <laughs> extremely unlucky. <laughs> yeah, quite. And then there's the haunted object or trigger object trope. That's a classic M.R. James-style ghost yeah, story feature. Tales like Whistle and I'll Come to You, uh, A Warning to the Curious, and in terms of the Nitley Abbey Phantoms, The Treasure of Abbot Thomas. Um, within all those stories, there's something about greed at the heart of them and about not stealing, ultimately. Mm, I, I also had hints of the mezzo tint with oh, the ghosts yeah. getting closer and closer and closer. Excellent. Good. Well, I'm very happy about that. Um, I also think one of the things people sometimes overlook in Gothic fiction is Catholicism. Uh, because when you think mm. of the creepy poems of Robert Browning or classic horror novels like Matthew Lewis's The Monk or Horace Walpole's The Castle of Otranto, it's almost always the case that the old Catholic beliefs are being presented as profane or dangerous. Yes, and you can also transfer the setting to Italy. Yes. Which makes it totally different. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, we see that in um, Renaissance writing a lot, especially, you know, all the plays are yeah. set in Italy, as if to say, well, we would never behave like this. But because they're in Italy and they're Catholic, they get up to all kinds of yeah, things. Yeah, naughty, naughty Italians and Catholics, <laughs> yeah, quite. So by framing stories in that way, you know, writers can get away with describing all sorts of creepy, ungodly, mm -hmm. sometimes perverted stuff, but make the case that they're being moral because it's the old ways that they're presenting as wrong or, or dangerous or macabre. As for Netley Abbey itself, it's an English heritage site. It's open to the public, although it's in quite a bad state of repair, like a lot of English heritage sites, and was closed for a while to secure parts of the crumbling ruin. Still, it is said that you can see the ghosts of Cistercian monks there. Uh, there's a legend of the old ghost of an abbot. Some people report hearing ghostly chanting at night. And that sometimes, especially on Halloween, you can see a group of three grey ladies there, sometimes accompanied by the sounds of ringing bells. That has nothing to do with ghosts. That's just the Netly WI having their <laughs> Halloween meeting. Yeah, of course, naturally. Um, even more curious, from 1863 until it was ruined by a mysterious fire in 1963, there was a military hospital and mental asylum on the Abbey grounds at Netly. Well, that's a big no. I know, right? <laughs> I'm surprised there's not been a movie made about this place actually know, it's, it's got it all right. hasn't it now netley abbey as an asylum saw plenty of famous inmates and visitors including the poets siegfried sassoon mm. and wilfred owen queen victoria visited and the playwright noel coward went there and one of the other ghosts that's said to haunt netley abbey is that of florence nightingale <laughs> okay yeah was she ever there in her life yeah well she did visit um, 
it was her criticisms of the practices at the military hospital which saw it reformed and rebuilt and expanded. So is her ghost haunting it to make sure conditions are kept sanitary? One presumes that she's kind of wandering around going, this is awful, none of this is sanitary anymore. (laughs) English Heritage, haunted by Florence Nightingale, telling them off. Yeah, that's it. (laughs) So for those of you who are interested in a bit more spooky action, if you join our Patreon by visiting patreon.com forward slash Three Ravens podcast, then I've included a bonus folk horror story there, The Corn Maiden, which I wrote a few years ago and which I hope people will enjoy. It's great and it's definitely in the folk horror tradition. (laughs) (laughs) Now, if you'd like to support the show and receive exclusive content like that story and our monthly Three Ravens newsletter, which this month contains a Walpurgis protection spell, a Beltane tarot spread, and breakdowns of the month's folk costumes and lots more besides, do consider signing up for just $3 a month via patreon.com forward slash Three Ravens podcast. Anyhow, Eleanor, where are we headed to next week? What do you have planned? Well, Grab your tights and get ready to ride through the glen because we are off to Nottinghamshire, (laughs) the land of Robin Hood. Sure, sure. So are we expecting a story all about bowmanship and Maid Marian? No, um, sorry to disappoint any diehard Robin Hood fans out there, (laughs) uh, but next week's story is going to be all about a greedy witch. Oh, yay! Perhaps one who can't get enough mini eggs in the (laughs) post-Easter sales. I'm not saying it's autobiographical, but... So um, please do pop by our website at threeravenspodcast.com where we host our archive of all past episodes, keep our blog with all sorts of expanded information for each episode and to visit our online shop for t-shirts and other Three Ravens merchandise. As always, if you have your own folk tale that you'd like us to feature on the podcast, then do write it up and email it to us at threeravenspodcast at gmail.com and we'll feature it in one of our upcoming listener episodes. And please artsy folk to enter our card design contest send us folk inspired designs to that same address as jpegs and come and join in the fun on twitter via at three ravens pod on instagram via at three ravens podcast and we're also on facebook.com forward slash three ravens podcast and don't forget to tag us if you're visiting interesting folky places around England we love seeing what you've been up to so until next time then while our story's gone that way we'll go this way and remember don't whistle until you're out of the woods thanks and credit go to Tony Kenyon's beautiful book of Winchester legends the HampshireHistory.com website and the team at Winchester Cathedral for being such amazing Our theme song is the traditional folk ballad Three Ravens, performed by Ben Harbour and Eleanor Conlon, and our logo was designed by Ollie James Dare. The Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production, written and produced by me, Martin Vaux. Thanks for listening. God sent every gentleman Such hounds, such hawks and such lean man With a down, derry, 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 down, down Hey! 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.